Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the eighth episode of season three of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I am your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, today's episode covers the opening track from side two of Damn the Torpedoes, Don't Do Me Like That. If you want to listen to the song before we get started, um, I don't embed the songs in the episode itself due to licensing issues, so there's a link in the episode notes for you to check out um, ahead of listening to this episode. Um, before we dig into the episode, though, I wanted to send my heartfelt condolences to Taylor Hawkins' family, uh, friends, and bandmates. The news of his death on Friday really... I mean, it really knocked me sideways. I've been a huge Foo Fighters fan since my brother-in-law, Mike, scored me a, a free ticket to see them live in Saskatoon on the Echo Silence Patience and Grace Tour in 2008. You know, I knew a very sort of small handful of their songs before the gig, so Everlong, Monkey Wrench, Learn to Fly, and The Pretender, the latter of which was recommended to me by my mum and was the song that really made me sit up and pay attention to them. Uh, but after seeing them play live... Taylor was a very big part of me really falling in love with them as a band. He was so charismatic and wild, yet at the same time, you know, so deadly accurate behind that kit. You never heard him drop a beat, miss a fill, or throw the timing off in any way, and it was obvious that he loved playing and being on stage. Um, he became easily one of my favourite rock and roll drummers and one of the very best I've seen live to this day. And both my daughters also love him and are big fans of the Foo Fighters. Um, the Break a Leg Tour was my eldest daughter's first ever rock show, and my youngest daughter came with me on the last tour, and after the gig said to me, the drummer is kind of like Animal from the Muppets. And that's now how I always imagine him. You know, a wild, crazy, drum-obsessed animal who was also so warm and personable that you'd love to give him a big hug. So thanks for all the music and the memories, Taylor. Your music and the impact your music and you had on people will live on forever. Okay, let's get into Don't Do Me Like That. Don't Do Me Like That was originally recorded as a Mud Crutch song in 1974 when Denny Cordell had sent that band down to Tulsa to record. Um, and it was also sort of mooted to be maybe one of the songs on a solo project that Tom was going to be, you know, he's going to be a solo artist rather than have a band. Uh, and again, that was one of the songs that was sort of in consideration for, for that project. And that Mud Crutch version was released as part of 1995's playback compilation. Uh, that early version was most definitely a little rough around the edges, with some of the transitions between sections being a little, you know, half-cooked almost. Um, there's also the signature Mike Campbell guitar lick missing, and the lyrics are slightly different from the version that was recorded for Torpedoes uh, here and there, including the line, hurt you down to size, rather than cut you down to size. It also does feature, though, a way funkier ending with a pretty damn cool breakbeat through that outro. Um, and Tom tells Paul Zolo in conversations with Tom Petty that it, it was kind of an R&B idea. I was trying to do an R&B song. And that drum break at the end definitely sort of fits with that idea. It's also possibly why it was removed in favour of a, a straighter time approach when Jimmy Iovine convinced Tom to re-record it so that it would fit with the overall aesthetic of the album. Um, I'll put a link in the episode notes to that Mudcrutch version because if you haven't heard it, it's well worth listening to. It gives you sort of a good sense of the, of the genesis of that song and where it came from. The song opens with the full band coming in together with those thunderous drums, Ron's bass and the guitar stabbing the same beats as the kick drum. We have those wonderful, simple uh, tom rolls at the beginning that are brilliantly panned as they come down. So if you listen under headphones, you'll notice that they start on the left side and roll over to the right. I hadn't actually noticed this specifically until I heard the drums isolated during an interview that Shelley Yakis gives on the Produce Like a Pro YouTube channel. Shelley was the sound engineer on Down the Torpedoes and talks about how the drums were so very specifically tuned and recorded to get that big sound that doesn't drown everything else out in the mix. 
Um, after four bars of that intro, the drums drop into a straighter groove and Benmont's organ takes over and provides most of the, the melodic accompaniment to the vocal track throughout the rest of the song. And the first four bars also really highlight how clever that piano part is. It's a G major chord followed by an A minor chord that they sit on, uh, which becomes suspended by that bass line, which plays F, C and D underneath it. And it just repeats and provides a sort of metronomic hi-hat-like percussiveness to that higher end melodic register. Throughout the song, Stan never comes off beat really, so that breakbeat ending we get on the Mudcrutch version is replaced again by a, a much straighter rock groove. That boom, chat, boom, boom, chat, boom. It's, it's the shape of the rest of the song uh, and, and is what the song is structured around. It's fairly simple through the verses and the chorus with some tight fills stitching the two sections together. Um, but during the bridge, we get a much more urgent four on the floor type of feel coming in and one of the best drum fills on the album leading back out of that middle eight. To go along with this, there's really not a ton to talk about with Ron Blair. He's keeping a very, very simple bass part, just again, hitting on those kicks and accenting those, those ones and then, you know, boom, chat, boom. He's just accent, accenting that and sitting along with what Stan's playing without really getting too, um, without getting too fancy. He does put a few more sort of notes in, in the bridge where there's space for it. And again, and again, I will talk about this, uh, when we get to it. I mean, that's sort of almost that little funky bit where he's, he's playing a little bit more, but overall, Ron's job here is, just to keep the bass line going, keep it plodding along, um, and let everything else sort of move around and, and provide the movement and the width to the song. The verse and chorus is one of the simplest and most understated guitar parts of any song Tom ever wrote, and yet, again, it's perfect in every way. All that's happening through the verses is that Tom and Mike are playing those guitar stabs on the kick drum and bass hits to give that chord progression a really, really percussive element that isn't really adding any melody into the mix in the same way that Ben Mont's piano is doing. When we get to the choruses, we get that genius three-note phrase that Mike throws in as a response to the don't do me like that call line. So again, very simple, but again, so memorable and intrinsically one of the things that makes this song so good. We also get a great middle eight in this, in this track. When we get to the bridge, we hear a wonderfully funky guitar and bass lick when the drums drop out slightly. Mike walks down the scale. So it's, I think it's if you look from the sort of 124 to 126 uh, time signature in the song. And Mike walks down the scale as Ron Blair comes down, but then back up again. So again, offsetting melodic directions that provide a ton of width to that single bar, breaking up that driving kick um, bridge part. And, you know, in, in that section, that 124 to 126, that one bar, it's almost a disco beat that they drop into. And it changes the entire dynamic of the bridge and subsequently of the entire song. We also get some very cool guitar work added into the outro with a double time lick played in the left channel and some triplets being played in the right. Again, this just gives the song a little movement and something to build to. Those riffs or the licks or, you know, one or the other of them could easily have been added into the chorus. Um, but this leaves the song with nowhere to go. And with the very simple structure of the song, you need those types of dynamic elements to really push things to a conclusion. And we saw the same thing done in the frenetic crescendo of Century City, where the song builds to a real climax. And it's the same principle here, but it's done much more subtly. So again, listen from about two, the 213 mark for an increase in tempo in what those guitars are doing. So let's talk about Benmont Tent, shall we? Uh, we had an abundance of keyboards on side one of the record, but this song is where Benmont really, really shines. As well as playing that percussive piano part, he plays some delicious sweeping organ in the intro before backing off for the verses. He then backs that rhythm piano out of the chorus and adds the organ back in, as well as some crisp chiming piano progressions heading up the scales through the last chords of that section. And again, these parts are expertly balanced by Shelley Yakis and Jimmy Iovine and never clash with either the vocals or anything that the guitars or drums are doing. 
Through the bridge, all Benmont has to do is allow the organ to provide texture, as the drums and the guitars are providing all the movement needed underneath the vocals. The volume is brought up very slightly to lead back out of the bridge into that last verse and is more prominent through that verse to lead us back into the final chorus and through the outro where again it fills that sort of high frequency range and just adds some width and some colour to the overall sound. There's a really cool little backstory to this organ part too, which some of you might know and I think I think might have been discussed in Running Down a Dream in the documentary. Anyway, during recording the organ take that ended up being used, Benmont forgot to turn on the Leslie speaker for the first chorus. And rather than either stopping the take or turning it on for the subsequent choruses, he just left it off for every chorus. Um, and that sort of helped with, he was sort of cognizant that if he sort of added it in for one chorus or two choruses, but not the other, um, that's going to sort of mess things up when they're trying to mix things later. It would be more difficult for them to fix that, um, that fix that afterwards. And I should probably clarify, a Leslie is a, a speaker that has a, a rota- well, it's an amp and speaker combo that has a rotating drum in front of the speaker, the speed of which can be controlled, and it gives it a, that very distinctive sort of trippy, spacey tremolo feel. Um, and I'll maybe add a link into the episode notes so that you can hear that if the effect that that provides and you can sort of see where it comes from because it's a really cool bit of kit. So Ben Mumford forgets to turn on the Leslie during the first chorus. Absolutely nails the take and plays a sensational part that you just have to keep. But they want that Leslie sound on those chorus sections, but have no real way of getting them back. So Shelley Yakas comes up with a DIY solution. He sends the organ part through a two-track tape machine that is modified by adding tape to the capstan, which is the, the spindle uh, the tape is driven around by. This makes the tape flutter. And as the signal is then fed back into the board, you get something that sounds approximately like a Leslie speaker, also kind of like a Fager and Calliope. This was then mixed back in with the original organ take uh, to give it the effect of having some tremolo on that part. It's incredibly cool and totally unique, as to the best of my knowledge, that technique was never used again and exists only on this one song. It's time, as usual, for some petty trivia. Um, last week I asked you, what was the original title of Mary Jane's Last Dance? And most petty heads, I'm sure, would have remembered this one pretty quickly. Um, the answer is, Indiana Girl. The original line for the chorus was, Hey, Indiana Girl, go out and find the world. And the story goes that after playing the song through during recording, Tom just kept, couldn't get behind that lyric. And according to Mike Campbell, came back a week later and said, I've got a better idea, which was Last Dance with Mary Jane. And we'll dig into the interpretation of those lyrics once we get to that song in around fall of next year, if my calculations are correct. Your question for this week is this. Who played drums on Tom's third and final solo album, Highway Companion? Okay, back to the song. Vocally, I think this is one of those songs that Tom just absolutely knocks into orbit. The phrasing and delivery are perfect, and he adds in just enough rasp to give you that sense of, you know, like whiskey and cigarettes, without it being so raspy that it thins out. And those don't, 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 don't lines are so urgent and honest that they really punch a hole through the hurt that he's actually talking about or singing about. I think I've said before that I really love songs that have a darkness to the lyrics but sit on top of a really sort of major key upbeat feel. And this song is a perfect example of that. 
It's a conversation between two people, and the singer lays out how his friend has been mistreated before imploring the person he's talking to not to do the same to him. And it's not hugely confrontational in the same way that, say, fooled again or you're going to get it or this is a much more vulnerable protestation it's almost beseeching the antagonist to do the right thing what if i love you baby don't do me like that i just might need you honey these aren't cocky lines they're defensive ones so i love that vulnerability and the doubt that creeps into this song he obviously became much more comfortable with bringing his own insecurity and self-doubt into his later work but i don't think it was ever as predominant on these early albums and so this is a great example uh, of that type of work The title of the song comes from an old saying that Tom's dad used to use. As he tells Paul Zolo in conversations with Tom Petty, I always thought it was a humorous thing, he said. Tom also tells Paul that because he didn't own a piano, but had that rhythm in his head, he rented a little recording studio called The Alley in North Hollywood for eight bucks an hour and went in there, stayed for an hour and wrote the song pretty much in that session before heading back home to finish up the lyrics. And he says, it wasn't much money to rent the studio, but it was the loneliest feeling walking in there by myself, sitting there and playing the piano. Not an environment you'd necessarily equate with writing a classic rock and roll tune. But that's the genius of Tom, I suppose. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. Uh, Don't Do Me Like That went on to become the band's first top 10 single, peaking at number 10 on the US chart, as well as hitting number three north of the border in Canada. I always knew we had good taste up here. I could make a strong argument for this being the best song on an incredibly good album because, for me, every single element collides, you know, just into the perfect storm. The simplicity of the structure is tempered by those vulnerable lyrics, And the production is so perfect that I'm sure it's used as a case study in recording schools. Or if it's not, it should be. The balance between every single part is on the money, and the separation of the tones and the instruments, and the way that they're organised sonically is just mesmerising. And on top of all that technical and creative brilliance, you also end up with one of the most instantly recognisable and hummable songs to come out of an entire decade. And it comes in at under three minutes too, so it's a really quick in and out. But man, oh man, do they make the best use of that three minutes. All that said... I mean, I really have to make Don't Do Me Like That the fourth 10 out of 10 from the album, and I'd be more than happy to discuss any places where people feel they may dock a point or two. If you want to nerd out to even greater levels of music geekery regarding this song, I've left a link to the episode of Produce Like a Pro that I was watching as part of my research in the episode notes. Um, As you can hear, a lot of the tracks isolated and hear uh, engineer Shelley Yakis get into real detail about elements of the song's recording and production. Um, Again, before I wrap things up, Please, just a reminder that you can support humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine in so many different ways. Um, and if you're doing that already, that's that's fantastic. And if you're not, I would urge you to do so if you have the means. I'll keep adding again the link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes um, for the foreseeable future. Um, recent developments seem to hint at a small glimmer of hope that we may see at least a reduction in the conflict in the coming days. But until words are actually turned into action, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions there. Uh, Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and please leave a review or a rating if you feel like doing that. The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first uh, and also go to TomPetty.com for official merchandise. And you can also pick up vinyl and CDs and all kinds of things there. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member of those groups as they're excellent fan communities and well worth hanging out in. 
Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to talk about the next track from Damn the Torpedoes, the distinctly funky, You Tell Me. Bye-bye.